0: All right, good evening, everyone. I apologize for the slight delay on our end, um, but thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a Graduate School of National Security, Intelligence, International Affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a doctoral program, and also two new online master of arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening we'll be hearing from Mr. Ethan Berger. Ethan S. Berger Esquire is a Washington-based international legal consultant and instructor with IWP's Cyber Intelligence Initiative, where he teaches a seminar about the international law governing cyber operations. His lecture at IWP have his past lectures at IWP have included the application of international law to cyber operations, better understanding Russian use of mercenaries to advance foreign policy goals, and contextualizing Russian interference in the 2016 UK Brexit referendum and the US presidential election. His areas of interest include corporate governance, transnational crime, corruption, cybercrime, and money laundering, and Russian affairs. After working as an attorney on Russian commercial and investment and risk issues, he segued into academic and advisory roles. He received his undergraduate degree from Harvard University and JD from the Georgetown University Law Center. Mr. Berger, welcome and thank you for joining us this evening.
1: Thank you very much, Hannah. Uh, People may know that over the past week, the the Office of Director of National Intelligence released uh, actually two or three very, very important reports. One was actually Hannah, the next slide. Uh, next slide, Hannah, please. One was about the Russian interference in the 2020 election. One was about the domestic terrorism threat. And then the last one just came out yesterday, the day before, about the overall net assessment. And uh, of particular interest is the whole situation with respect to foreign threats to the US federal elections. Next slide, please. What was most interesting about this report was that there was nothing earth shattering in it. Now, prior to the election, there was a lot of concern as to what Russia was going to be doing, whether they were going to do things similar to what they did in 2016. And so there was a tension within the government in that you know, President Trump seemed to be downplaying and basically ignoring uh, the threat to the the mechanics of the election process because he viewed you know, Mr. Putin as basically an ally in this process. Whereas the people in the federal bureaucracy and the Democrats were very, very concerned about what might actually happen. And so what ended up happening was very little. And as I said, that was the news. And so with respect to Russia, uh, they really didn't have an opportunity or really didn't even bother attempting to interfere with the voter registration, the casting of ballots, the tabulation of ballots, or the reporting of results. And there were some minor things that were done by Russia and Iran in terms of spreading for false information and doing things along those lines, but it was really not very significant. Next slide. Now, this slide, which is obviously too complex to uh, get when looking at it, shows the types of influence operations or active measures that Russia engaged in, in the period 2014 to 2016. And I should mention uh, right now that you shouldn't take slot, take notes because these slides will be made available on the IWP website. You should basically just listen, write down whatever questions you may have and I'll try to respond to them at the end. Uh, but as you'll see here, you have many different actors on behalf of Russia. You have basically you know, the ambassador playing a certain role, the GRU, which is you know, Russian intelligence, playing another role, then you have SDR, then the KGB, and other things with very, very different objectives, though they're all sort of related. Next slide. One of the things that people have been focusing on this week is that there was a report released by the U.S. Treasury Department. And what the Treasury Department's report focused on was the 2016 interference. And the Treasury report basically just validated the findings of the Senate Intelligence Committee's report describing how then- uh, Trump campaign ma- manager uh, Paul Manafort along with Rick Gates as the deputy campaign manager were, were funneling information to Komenik uh, who then passed on the information to Oleg Deripaska and then passed on the information to Vladimir Putin and the people around him. In essence, this you know, showed what what could be described as the collusion in terms of between the Trump uh, campaign and the Russians. Now, what particular was going on in terms of the relationship between Mr. Trump and Paul Manafort is not really known. And we'll probably never know, or it's unlikely we'll ever know. But what was really important was that the U.S. intelligence community, Publicly validated that which was not fully uh, embraced by the Intelligence Committee, you know, of the Senate, because they were under you know restrictions in terms of what they were going to make available. Next slide. Here are basically what I call the uh, the timelines of the collusion and you'll see you know what in essence happened where first there were initial contacts and then there between the Trump campaign but not necessarily Mr. Trump and then the efforts to get into the Democratic National Committee's databases the exfiltration of emails the sharing of the emails with um, with WikiLeaks and then the release of those emails and that process began basically in 2016 and then heated up in the summer of 2016 so it was first the spring of 2016 and then all the data was exfiltrated in 2016 and it became part of the whole dynamic of the election next slide So that ODNI came up with, in essence, five key judgments. The first one was that there was no evidence of any successful attempt of a technical nature to interfere with the voting process. As I said, that includes registration, casting of ballots, tabulation, and reporting. And what was important was that they were confident that if there had been any type of technical interference or or manipulation, they would have been able to pick it up. Now, essentially, this is like a threshold issue because they felt that unless this was of a sizable nature, it really would not have impacted the results. And they said that they really couldn't issue an an opinion as to whether there may have been some minor things at the state and local level, but they were fairly confident that it had not been successful. The judgment, too, is the idea that they their findings was that Vladimir Putin signed off on this entire process, both in terms of the influence campaign and the effort to denigrate Now, President Biden support uh, then President Trump in terms of undermining the public, the American public confidence in the election process, and that was, you know, very much a reinforcing of what Mr. Trump was saying publicly in terms of the unreliability of the voting process, in terms of absentee balloting, et cetera. So that while you know, Russia was in a situation where they had to create their own content. They simply had to follow that which Mr. Trump was saying you know, to the media directly, you know, the commercials, et cetera, and sort of provided an echo chamber to that which is already taking place. And that's sort of different than 2016, where you know, the Russians were actually dev- developing more of their own content and, and directly uh, sending out information to voters. Next slide. The third thing is that Iran, for the first time, got active in the process. Now, Iran's influence campaign was not focused in on, you know, mechanical voting type of things, but they did something strange. They reached out directly to potential voters, but it's hard to understand what their objectives were because they were trying to discourage certain people from voting. And it's not clear how that would have helped in their objectives, which basically was to disparage and undermine President Trump. The Iran really didn't go out of its way to build up Joe Biden as a candidate. China, in contrast, sort of was fairly aloof in the whole process. They did some sharing of their views on various issues, but they really didn't sort of take and didn't really make an effort to undermine Mr. Trump, though there's a minority view within the office of the director of national intelligence who felt that indeed there was an effort to undermine mr trump's so it's not a uniform uh position on that issue and then the next thing were additional foreign actors and that's like hisbollah in lebanon cuba venezuela and they made certain efforts to influence the election but these are relatively minor. Next slide. One of the things which is really important is that in the run-up to the election, the American public was much more aware of how the influence campaigns would be operating, the risk of uh, fake media appearing the the use of deep fakes and this type of thing. And so that unlike 2016, where where voters and viewers on social media were not super sophisticated, they were more so in the 2020 election. But it's really domestic sources and groups like QAnon, who played a much greater role in terms of influencing sort of, or, in you know, a so overtly uh, designed and maliciously motivated type campaign. And then there's like a lot of social media, which was of a much more efficient nature, nature like the Lincoln project and things like that. And of course, all the other PACs, and things like that which were sharing things. And then, of course, all the organizations which are active on Facebook and other mainstream social media. Next slide. But As I said, while Russia was trying to magnify what the Trump campaign was getting out, one of the things which was interesting and partially counterproductive, was that Russia thought, given what their objectives were in terms of Ukraine, that somehow American voters would really care about the situation in Ukraine. And that's sort of hard to understand. And you're probably aware, you know, Trump used to say when people would ask him about U.S. Russia relations under him, he used to say, well, what's bad with having good relations with Russia? And so that he the Russians sort of felt that it would be better to show that U.S.-Russian relations would be better with a Trump presidency than it might be with a Biden presidency Uh, that Ukraine was like a bad actor for the United States, et cetera. And here just describes a little bit more the role of the Internet Research Agency and sort of the mechanics by which the Russians uh, shared information. Another thing which is really important is that the Russians tried to undermine the American public's confidence in the rollout of the vaccines, which were coming down. They tried to make people apprehensive about voting, you know, et cetera. I mean, they basically felt that the lower the turnout in person, and that it would help what their candidate wanted. So that they took their leads from the Trump campaign. And uh, they felt the aggravating tensions within the American community and aggravating you know, racial tensions and whatnot played to uh, their advantage. Next slide. Uh, one of the reasons why you know, Russia and Mr. Putin Viewed, you know, Mr. Biden as not desirable. Is that you know, Joe Biden took the lead, uh, or was assigned a leading role in you know, President Obama's Ukrainian policy, and that is both with respect to the post-Crimea uh, situation, uh, the Russian. Uh, Support of the separatists in Eastern Ukraine, etc., and so that they felt that a Biden presidency would be like a continuation of an Obama presidency on in the foreign policy uh, arena. Next slide. Well, there's a lot of emphasis in terms of interference in the electoral process at the presidential level what is particularly important and often overlooked is the impact on a small change of voting in, in at the state level either for the Senate within states with respect to the casting, of the electoral college votes, as well as congressional seats. Now everyone is probably familiar with how few votes differentiated the Democratic and Republican candidates in Georgia, so it had to go into a runoff and ultimately the Democrats got both seats in Georgia. In, Ar- in Arizona, the voting was very close for the electoral college. It was also very close for Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, though the Democrats got you know, narrow victories in all those states. In the congressional elections, there were many states where the margin of error or the margin of victory was 5% or less. And the Democrats, who expected to win or be up by about 35, 40 seats in Congress, their uh, majority was shrunk, and so that in the event in the future, countries are trying to sort of target their efforts strategically. They would focus in on you know, congressional elections and Senate and you know, particular states to flip states in the electoral college and also senators and not necessarily focusing in on you know, foreign policy issues, but trying to figure out what may resonate with voters within particular districts. Uh, next slide. Uh, this thing is not so important except to mention that the Russians try to sort of directly go through U.S. persons to try to influence uh, the Trump campaign, in this case it was Rudy Giuliani, Uh, there were other people that the Russians sort of reached out towards. Uh, The full nature of this is still not known and we'll see uh, as more things come out. Uh, Next slide. The Russians also have done some things which they had not done previously, which is the outsourcing of some of their work to uh, private entities and contractors in countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Mexico, so that not everything is emanating from Russia in terms of the the social media type things, and so that you have third world or third country nationals being used uh, basically as contractors, you know, for the Russians to do these types of things, and very often, you know, they're trying to magnify U.S. domestic sources, uh, and that's done, you know, on Russia Today, which is you know a Russian, you know, television uh, network and Russian. Newspapers and also trying very hard to promote the QAnon conspiracy theories. Next slide. Um, Just prior to the election, the United States conducted two dozen cyber operations, and that was confirmed by Paul uh, Nakasone. Um, There's a very, very good YouTube program that, and I Give you the link beneath it in the middle of that page that's worth watching which studied you know russia russia disinformation operations in this last election uh and Newberger was the principal participant uh in this program and i recommend it to you next slide and just yesterday the united states announced the sanctions that they're imposing on Russia, and these are sanctions for the 2016 election, the 2020 election, the Solar Winds hack, and also for the treatment of political dissidents such as Alexei uh, Navalny. Now, while these sanctions may seem like they're fairly substantial, and they are a notch up on what was already there. What's significant is what they did not do, which is they did not sanction the uh, Russian energy sector. They did not sanction uh, President Putin personally. They did not cut off Russia entirely from, uh, from the international financial, you know, you know, community in terms of wiring money, this type of thing. And so that there's more stuff that could be done. Uh, I think that in the United States, there would be a lot of opposition to ratcheting up uh, things at this stage. Next slide. And I just very briefly mentioned this in terms of Iran being involved in some uh, you know, influence campaigning that what's interesting is they mas- masqueraded as people with the proud boys and they, you know, sent messages and reached out to African-Americans, particularly in Florida. And, you know, why they did this, it's not quite clear. Next Nick, Nick slide was China, you know, It didn't target the elections per se. Uh, They are basically just trying to make the American public more aware that their interests have to be considered by the United States in the future. They also tried to defer or reject the idea that they were behind the COVID-19 virus and some type of deferreds. Nefarious way. You know, you know, that's you know all very important. They tried to uh, emphasize that they were fairly good at, at limiting the spread of the virus within China, um, and so and that you know is, basically it was more like conventional public diplomacy type of thing you would hear on the Voice of America. Actually, not Voice America, but Radio Liberty for Europe, uh, and the type of thing that the Chinese would have ordinarily over their radio uh, to make people aware of their policies and what's going on within their country. Uh, it's more effective than the newspaper China Today because it reaches a wider audience. Next slide. Uh, This is just what was going on, you know, the idea that the Trump administration did not want Congress to get briefed by ODNI in terms of what was going on with respect to the run-up to the elections. Uh, They eliminated the briefings for Congress at the very end. Uh, They were trying very hard to make it seem like China was an aggressive social media threat and was an aggressive threat to uh, the whole election process. And obviously, that was to further their agenda. And uh, that has been shown not to be the case. Next slide. But let's let's have some comparative context of this whole thing. First, you know, the idea of interfering in elections is not a new thing. The U.S., Soviet Union, the U.K. and France have been doing this since World War II. And the biggest difference is that the nature of it is different in terms of the technological tools that are involved. Now, there have always been things like, you know, you know, governments making public statements, using foreign aid to try to you know, get or at least help countries that they're trying to help, uh, imposing sanctions or threatening economic pressure, you know, via bo- boycotts against countries that they view as hostile. And then, of course, there's always also the very prominent you know, funneling of money to political parties uh, during elections. You know, for example, in France. In Italy, immediately after World War II, Uh this happened in Vietnam. Happened a lot in South America. So this type of thing um, is not new, and so that you know the United States, you know, can't act like you know we are cleaner than everyone because just like the Soviet Union did these types of things in Eastern Europe to try to influence the election process in Poland and Czech Republic. Uh, Hungary, and Germany, everyone's been doing this. I mean, all all the major powers have been doing this. You know, France would do it in their former colonies. Great Britain would do the same. So uh, you need to keep that in mind when you're listening to people in the U.S. government complaining about what Russia is doing. Next slide. There are a number of people who have studied this topic. I just sort of throw out uh, some of the studies that have been done. Um, And it's not worth going into that here. But if you want to uh, do further research on this thing, this slide is available to use as a basis for such research. Next slide. Uh, some of the academics have developed what they consider to be a topology of intervention. Once again, uh, you know, we can't, I want to go into this in detail, but it's sort of like a step-by-step in terms of how interventions are done to influence election outcomes. Next slide. And these are some of the most prominent examples of intervention. And on the right, you see the countries that are doing the intervention, and then you're seeing the targets of the intervention. A lot of people will be familiar with the situation in Chile, uh, the situation in the Congo, uh, less so Turkey's interference in Germany, sort of counter to what most people would think. This, this is a, a country which is less powerful going to try to influence uh, the treatment of their own nationals in Germany. So they're trying to go against like the right-wing people in Germany who are more hostile to uh, guest workers. You see France dealing with their former colony. Uh, you see South Vietnam in 1968 during the presidential election trying to influence the outcome there because they were concerned of being uh, not supported by the United States. So these are sometimes very interesting situations which are sometimes counterintuitive where the uh, the so-called client state is the one that is intervening in the more powerful uh, countries' political process. Next slide. Uh, this is like just important to appreciate the fact that uh, you need to be monitoring all aspects of what's going on in another country in terms of the political media uh, within a country and do you see the impact of your own efforts because you know, it's very possible that you may be uh, trying to influence another country's uh, policies or perceptions of you and it could be counterproductive. Uh, as I said, you know, the Russians may have experienced that by their over-focus on Ukraine and the United States because it was not like a winning issue for them. Next slide. Uh, the Australians are trying to experiment uh, with trying to make their electoral process more transparent, uh, What they're concerned about is largely Chinese political intervention in their elections through uh, companies that either they do business with them or they own outright. Uh, This is very hard to do given uh, that you you have shell companies and dummy companies and, you know, Just because a company will be doing business with another company doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they'll do the bidding of the first country. And so it remains to be seen whether or not this Australian effort will be successful. Next slide. Jack Goldsmith, who's at Harvard, you know, is one of the best uh, analysts of cybersecurity type things, and uh, and you know, he's sitting out here. Some ideas that he thinks should be done to improve uh, United States cybersecurity. Once again, I just share it with you. Uh, this article is worth looking at. I don't want to really get into it because it's a bit off topic, but I think it's worth uh, noting. Next slide. Same thing as before. Next slide. And The important thing to come away from this is that cybersecurity and cyber problems can only really be understood within the larger context of international relations and the physical world. And that our problems with with China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, while they have a cyber element, would exist independently of whether cyber is involved or not. And that issues like financial crime, espionage, intellectual property, all this type of stuff exists independent of of cyber. Now cyber is both a tool for doing things as well as it can be sort of independent in the sense that it could be isolated in terms of cyber to cyber conflict. Next slide. And that's sort of where we're at. So I, I spoke for 15 minutes. If you, does everyone have any questions or comments? I'd like to take them now.
0: All right, yes, now we will, transition to the Q&A portion of the seminar. So if you have any questions for Mr. Berger, please feel welcome um, to comment in the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Also, if you're watching on Facebook, um, please feel free to type your questions in the comment section. Um, So why are you doing that? We do have a question here. Um, The first question, will different candidates from the Democratic and Republican parties come to power to a large extent affect the foreign policy of different countries?
1: Well, certainly. I, mean, I think different countries' foreign policies uh, will change directly. Well, just look at uh, in the Middle East with Israel. Now that you know Biden is in the White House, I think the Israelis will be more cautious in terms of uh, the way they deal with the West Bank, in terms of their willingness to uh, be aggressive towards groups in, like, Lebanon. Look at uh, the Russians massing troops on the Ukrainian border. Uh, they wouldn't have had to do that had Trump remained in power uh, because they would feel that they could sort of push. Ukraine around more. Uh, these sanctions, as I mentioned, have multiple reasons, part of which is to keep you know, Russia in line with respect to Ukraine. Uh, I think also our NATO allies are feeling the same way with respect to Russia and Ukraine, so that you know, changes of political power will lead to changes in foreign policy.
0: The next question uh, is, do you foresee that this issue will greatly increase as technology and partisan politics grow in the future?
1: No, yeah, I think it's just going to get worse because uh, it's going to be harder and harder to know what is real and what is not uh, with, with deep fakes and all this type of thing. Uh, there's a growing sophistication in terms of the, people who can create content. And I think that they will always be one step ahead of the people that are managing it. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I realize it's generality, but I mean, there's really no way of being able to predict the future about these things, but it's not a problem that's going to go away.
0: Okay, I think that was um, the last question that I see on the docket. So if you have, we'll give it about a few more seconds. If you have questions for Mr. Berger, please feel welcome to comment in the Q&A uh, section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, one attendee asked, will you make the slides available? Um, and I think we can share those after um, the presentation and the follow-up email to the attendees. Okay. Well, thank you very
1: much for coming in, I guess. And thank you, Hannah, for taking me through the slides.
0: Yeah. Um, We'll give it a few more seconds if anyone has any follow-up questions. Um, Just give it a second or two. And if not, then we'll close the presentation tonight. Great. All right. I don't okay. see any more questions. Um, so I would like to thank Mr. Wow. Berger for joining us this evening and all of you who tuned in he, on here and, and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to IWP.edu. Again, that's IWP.edu. Thank you, everyone. And I hope you have a great weekend. Bye-bye.